Ich bin jetzt seit 25 Jahren Makler. Aber Wohnungssuche heutzutage? Sie glauben ja gar nicht, was die Leute alles versuchen. Neulich wollte mich ein Paar mit ihrem Ehering bestechen. Hab natürlich abgelehnt, sowas mache ich nicht. Und dann, auf der letzten Besichtigung, kam eine Gruppe von Studenten, die sind mit einer Riesenleiter über den Balkon in die Wohnung geklettert, um ganz vorne mit dabei zu sein. Was kommt als nächstes? Rentner, die sich vom Dach abseilen? Dabei gibt's doch bessere Wege, um an ein neues Zuhause zu kommen. Finde Immobilien, die du sonst nirgends findest, auf eBay Kleinanzeigen. You're with Cape Talk. You're with Cape Talk. Yeah, absolutely. And that big appointment, that big appointment with the Naked Scientist every Friday, just after 9.30 news headlines. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Welcome back, Chris. Morning. Good to have you. We're going to jump straight into the questions. A question from James in Observatory. If aircraft fly because of the shape of the wing that creates air pressure upwards as the plane moves, how do they fly upside down or do a victory loop? Hi, James. Well, the simple way to think about this is that the way a wing works is that it is creating lift by pushing air downwards. And if you push air downwards, air must push you back upwards with the same force, but in the opposite direction, which is why you push air downwards, it pushes you upwards. That's Isaac Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So think about the bottom of the wing. Wings are curved downwards, so the front of the wing is higher than the back surface of the wing, so air passing under the wing must be being forced down. So far, so good. What about the top? Well, wings are also curved across the top, and there is a phenomenon in physics called the Coander effect, whereby as a fluid passes over a surface, if that surface is curved, the fluid sticks to that curved surface. So as air goes over the top of the wing, the air above the wing is being pulled down onto the wing surface to stick to it. And if you pull the air down, it must push back. In other words, it must pull you back in the opposite direction. So it will pull the top of the wing up. So the wings are generating lift by pushing air downwards with the lower surface of the wing and being pulled upwards with the upper surface of the wing. And that's how the plane flies normally. So if we flip the plane over, what would happen? Well, if you watch when a pilot flies an aircraft upside down, you'll see that the plane does not fly normally. It doesn't fly in the same streamlined attitude. The pilot will adopt what's called a really high angle of attack. So they're flying along with the nose of the plane right up in the air so that even though the wing is upside down and the wrong inefficient shape to work as it would do normally, it's still got the front or leading edge of the wing higher than the back of the wing and therefore the net effect is still to push air from a higher point to a lower point and therefore it still generates lift and therefore the plane can still remain aloft. We thank you for that answer. Uh, Glenn in Somerset West, he's on the line with a question to you. Glenn, go ahead. So uh, I'm traveling uh, on a daily basis past these farms and I notice that the sheep, they are constantly eating. Unlike dogs and cats, they're playing with with each other. These animals are just eating and eating. And one day I decided I'm going to pull off the road and stand and watch them for half an hour. They were just eating and eating nonstop. Why is that? <laughs> they must be hungry. Now, the answer is, Glenn, that you're comparing a dog or a cat, which is a carnivore, with a sheep, which is a ruminant. They eat grass. When you eat meat, your digestive juices are very good at liberating calories very quickly from high-protein foods like meat and also sugary foods like cereals and so on. If you're a ruminant 
and you're eating grass, the energy value of grass is really low, first and foremost. So a sheep has to eat a lot of grass to get the same amount of energy as you would get from, say, one burger. That's the first point. The second point is that the energy that's in the grass is in a chemically hard-to-access form. It's in a form called cellulose, chiefly. That's basically wood. So when the sheep eats the grass, it has a real hard time getting access to those calories because the polymers, uh, lots of sugar molecules joined together to make cellulose, are really hard to break apart. So what ruminants like sheep, but also goats and cows and kangaroos, there are many of them, what they do is employ bacteria to do the job for them. So when we say a cow or a sheep eats grass, that's not strictly true because what it's really eating is a soup of bacteria that it has fed on the grass and the bacteria have fed themselves by, do, by having the metabolic knives and forks that will break down what the sheep can't, which is the cellulose in the grass. So the sheep, A, has to eat a lot in order to get enough calories in and B, it has to have a helping hand from bacteria but it also has to give the bacteria a helping hand and it does that by having chewed the grass up it then regurgitates it and camels do this as well you'll see that bulge come up their neck and, and so do giraffes they return the contents of the food that's in their stomach to their mouths periodically and chew it over again and this helps to break down the material further so that the bacteria can further access the cellulose and liberate sugar. And that feeds the bacteria. The bacteria then produce various micronutrients that the sheep can absorb and further break down. And so the sheep is eating the products of fermentation, effectively. It's not eating the grass directly. But this is quite a labour-intensive process, which is why these animals have to eat relentlessly. Doctor, does... Nothing exists beyond space's edge. Does outer space ever end or does it go on and on forever? If it does indeed have an end, what is it like out there? That's the question via WhatsApp, unsigned. Well, the answer to this one is that the universe is vast. The universe is also 13.8 billion years old and it's not static. So as it ages, it's growing and it's not growing at the same rate. It's growing faster and faster. So as, as the more it grows, the faster it goes, I suppose you could say. What is happening is that when the universe was first formed from the Big Bang, it was tiny. But within a fraction of a second, as in millionths of a second, it became enormous because of a process called inflation. It blew up much, much more rapidly than the speed of light. It then slowed down but continued to grow only very slowly for a long period of time, as in billions of years. And then after about six billion years, it began to grow again and grow faster. And so the data we now have, thanks largely to insights from Edwin Hubble, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is named, he looked across the universe and saw that the farther away objects that we can see appeared to be retreating from us faster than closer objects. And the difference between those two is that closer objects, the light's taken less time to reach us, so therefore there's less time between those two observations. So in other words, the older the universe gets, the faster it's growing. And so therefore, if you got to the edge of the universe, you would see the universe growing away in front of you. And if you waited long enough, you'd see it growing so fast you couldn't keep up with it. We don't know exactly why that's happening, but physicists invoke a phenomenon called dark energy to explain this, which is that the more universe that gets created the more dark energy there is, and the more dark energy there is, the more push or force there is to make the universe grow faster and further against the retracting effects of gravity. We don't know what the ultimate outcome will be, 
We don't know if the universe will continue to grow at an increasingly fast rate, indefinitely, or whether it will reach another steady state like it did not long after the Big Bang and stay that way for a while. At the moment there are a range of theories. Scientists are developing ways to test those theories and try to work out what explains what's going on. But the answer is the universe is certainly not static. It's getting bigger. And if you were to go to Douglas Adams's restaurant at the end of the universe, it would have to be a very fast-moving restaurant to keep up with the edge of the universe because that would be retreating away from you all the time very rapidly. Uh, Dr. Chris, my question is about hypnotism. How does it work and have you ever been hypnotised? Samantha with that question. Hello, Samantha. The answer is they tried. Um, I was invited onto stage by a stage hypnotist when I was at medical school. I got thrown off the stage because it blatantly wasn't working on me. I wasn't playing along. Hypnosis is a real thing in the sense that if you go to a proper practitioner who will put you into a, a state of deep relaxation... You, you don't go unconscious, you don't lose control of your faculties, but what you do do is to relax and divorce yourself from some of the constraints cognitively that would normally make you think or answer a certain way, giving you the opportunity to think about things unconstrained or in a more relaxed way. But when you go and watch a stage show, these people are playing along, this is all a trick, and they basically get people who are very suggestible willing to have a laugh and uh, who, who will be willing to humiliate themselves for a gag on stage and who don't want to be humiliated by being thrown off the stage because they're clearly not playing along. I, I was not playing along so the guy just chucked me off and <laughs> I was kind of proud of that because I thought well I'm not falling for this but some of my friends did play along and got a good laugh out of it but it, stage hypnosis is entertainment therapeutic hypnosis is not magic it's not doing something to your brain that it, it, we don't understand it's putting you into a state of relaxation and you certainly retain complete control over your faculties and you wouldn't do something under hypnosis that you wouldn't do normally that's that's a myth but certainly if you see this being done on stage most of the time it's for cheap laughs that, yeah it, it, is that also the kind of auto suggestion that doesn't work for some and works for other for others is there such a thing as auto suggestion and it manifesting in some kind of uh, slave response I think so. I think that there are people who are willing to go along with it or peer pressure. People think, well, everyone else is expecting me to behave a certain way, so I better had because otherwise I'm going to make a problem or you know, people are going to be upset with me. And, and so that they therefore do do as they're told and they play along with the jokes. But it, it's, certainly, it's certainly not magic. It, it is just people playing and entertaining you on stage. Okay, so I had an operation uh, on my gums, and I was sedated, and I was conscious through some of of the procedure. I could hear the doctor, uh, the doctors talking about me while they were doing their thing. Well, when we are anaesthetized, we don't really understand how general anaesthetics work. We just know that usually they're very volatile chemicals that they get into the nervous system, and they in some way affect the electrical activity of nerve cells. And in that way, they alter your state of uh, awareness. But they don't do it necessarily comprehensively. They don't deactivate your brain completely. Otherwise, you'd be brain dead. They tend to deactivate certain parts of the brain more than others. And some drugs work by targeting certain brain systems more than others. So it's possible if you were partially aware that you just weren't sufficiently anaesthetized. 
because some of the anaesthetic agents that we use are not very what we call potent. And nitrous oxide is a good example of this. A very good anaesthetic, a very good agent for keeping people asleep once they are asleep, but terrible for making people go to sleep in the first place. And so it's possible that you may have been partially anaesthetised or given too small a dose with something that wasn't sufficiently potent to keep you completely anaesthetised, so you had some degree of awareness, but because... If it was nitrous oxide, for example, it's a very good painkiller. You would have been insensible to any discomfort, but you may have been vaguely aware of some of the other things that were going on. Precisely. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, a voice note in on this topic. Let's take a listen. Hi, Chris. Um, I recently had conscious sedation, and it was quite a uh, phenomenal experience, um, my first time. And, yeah, I, I just wanted to understand how it actually works. Well, as I said, I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, I've had to speculate, and I hate doing that. So if anyone knows better, do please let us know. I know we've got some very bright listeners out there. So if you have a better idea or a better suggestion than, than, than what we've just been discussing, do let us know. I'll take a look in the meantime and, and see if anyone else can shed some light and bring it back as homework next week. Okay, that, qu that question that does your head in, it that's the question for, uh, for the Naked Scientists. And we have one such question in from Hafisa. Uh, Doc, how do we get different colours in a tube of toothpaste why don't the stripes of blue red and white mix yeah well i would encourage anyone who's intrigued by the stripes in the toothpaste to do the experiment go and get a tube of toothpaste cut it in half crossways and you will see the trick they're using it looks like it's magic and you think why doesn't all the stripiness mix up to make a horrible blurry mess by the end of the tube why does it remain nice and perfectly stripy the answer is it is not striped inside the tube what there are inside the tubes are compartments with different coloured toothpaste goo in them and when you squeeze a fluid it's incompressible so the force is equivalently transmitted across the fluid so when you squeeze the bottom of the tube it squeezes on all of the different compartments equivalently and as though those are all meet at the neck of the toothpaste tube they impart a bit of what's in them to the sausage that's coming out or the toothpaste streamer that's coming out at the end and so you do get your red bit your white bit and your blue bit but from each of the three different compartments and it's only when you get right to the end of the tube that you get a bit of a mishmash in the neck of the, the the toothpaste tube when you do get that sort of purple goo beginning to form where they've all mixed together but right up until that point usually there's enough force and pressure in there to hold them all separate and in their separate compartments so you get nice stripy toothpaste Wow, Hafisa, your question is answered. I'm now wondering what you're going to do with that time uh, that you took to consider those stripes before you started brushing your teeth. Maybe you'll find another question for the doc in no time. Um, uh, this question is about primates. Why don't we keep cute primates as pets? Well, some people do and some people have, but we've become more respectful as time has gone on of the richness of nature and the fact that we can't recreate the wild habitat for these animals properly. They didn't evolve to live as pets in our homes, and it makes them miserable. And if we don't give animals the, the right existence that they've evolved to enjoy, then they don't enjoy their lives, and they're not as happy, and they're not as healthy. And also, some of these animals are highly endangered, and if we go taking them as pets, then we destroy their social communities in the wild, and that's really important. These animals are highly socialised species. They depend on each other, and just the same way as we depend on each other and if we rob them away from their communities 
then we destabilize those communities and we make these already in some cases endangered animals even more endangered so it's really important that that we do respect nature and we respect wild animals that are also highly intelligent some of these species have very big brains they are clearly very intelligent and they are very aware of what's happening to them you might say well why do we have dogs as pets then well the answer is that dogs evolved to become our pets and we've become man's best friend etc dogs have become man's best friend over thousands of years we think dog domestication happened more than 10,000 maybe even 20,000 years ago probably because dogs ancestors wolves began to creep closer to where humans had settlements because there was the opportunity to grab free food and as some of those dogs became more and more friendly just by natural selection because dogs which got fed by people probably did better than animals this is dog ancestors, than animals that were having to fend for themselves in the wild, those that were closer to humans and socialised better with humans got more food, so they were selected and were more successful. And so it bred into those animals a combination of genes that led to them becoming much better friends for humans. And so now dogs would be completely up the creek without humans, really. So that's why they are very happy to be in our company and we're very happy to be in their company because we've co-evolved over thousands of years to become extremely good friends. But your average animal that hasn't had that kind of breeding or that kind of selection will do very badly if you just put them in your home because your home is not their home. In conversation with the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris Smith and Mike in Pinelands, clearly a sharp focus on sedation. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, Chris. I was just filling in the gaps on conscious sedation. It's a standard technique adopted for many procedures. I had a gastroscopy last week under conscious sedation. So it's usually a benzodiazepine, uh, something a uh, variant of Valium for the general public, and uh, often with a combination of an opiate so that you're not anesthetized in any term. And the definition is that you should maintain verbal contact with the patient throughout the procedure, which makes it <clears throat> safer, you don't have to protect the airway the way you do under a general anaesthetic and patients uh, tolerate it very well. So it's widely used for a, a variety. It started with dentistry, but it's spread to many other endoscopic and other procedures. So conscious sedation uh, isn't general anaesthetic. It isn't someone who's too lightly anaesthetized. It's a different technique. Brilliant. Thank you very much for clearing that one up. And uh, I think we're going to go to the last question. The question about a cold shiver, uh, the experience that they call a goose walking over your grave. Can you explain to us why that happens? Is this when we sort of shudder when something yes. makes you very nervous or concerned? The reason that we, we shiver at all, it's obviously there to make us warmer. And so normally we shiver because you're invoking both pairs of muscles that would move a joint antagonistically at the same time against each other and when you contract a muscle against its opposite number obviously the joint has more limited movement and you basically burn energy and go nowhere so it generates a lot of heat because muscles are only about 30 percent efficient so we use that technique normally to warm us up when we get very cold and it's activated by a part of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system and specifically your sympathetic nervous system that takes control of things that you don't have to worry about it's like autopilot for the nervous system and that switches on when you are stressed so normally if you become thermally stressed you're too cold you turn on your sympathetic nervous system this diverts blood away from your peripheries away from your skin away from your guts and more towards your core essential inner organs 
but it also activates shivering responses to warm you up. So unsurprisingly, when you have other sorts of experiences that also engage your sympathetic nervous system, it can cause some of the same effects to kick in. The sympathetic nervous system is part of your fight or flight reaction. So if something terrifies you or scares you or panics you, you will get some of the same reactions that you would do that you get when you're stressed in other ways. And so when you are concerned about, I think something's after me or there's something horrible happening, it might make you shudder like that because it's invoking those same fight or flight responses and also leading to a big surge in adrenaline, which can also make your muscles become more tense. And so I think that's the reason why you get that sensation of prickliness, goosebumps and someone walking over your grave. It's because of a big surge of adrenaline and activating the very same circuits that uh, you use to fight or flight, run away or warm yourself up when you get cold. We have a chance for a last question because it's yes or no, a true or untrue kind of question. Um, The question is, hi, Dr. Chris, I have a UPS inverter in my room that provides electricity to my TV and my lamp during load shedding. I have been told that this is dangerous to my health as it emits ozone. Is this true, says or asks Henry? Hi, Henry. If it does emit any ozone, the amount will be absolutely tiny. If you have an inverter which basically is spinning round it's got brushes and things electric motors do make little bits of ozone you can smell this when you use your power drill and you'll see sparks where the brushes are contacting the commutator inside you may see uh, those blue sparks you may smell the characteristic odor of ozone the amount is absolutely tiny and most inverters don't actually have that system running in them some do but um, most don't but the amount would be absolutely tiny I'd say that if you just open the window and ventilate the room, you're not going to do any harm whatsoever. And you will, on the other hand, gain enormously through managing to keep your electric devices running. And if it gives you any reassurance, I've got loads of UPSs that I use on my computers and things and uh, my my radio equipment to make sure that we don't get accidentally taken off air by a power outage or something. and, And I haven't died yet. And on that note, we're going to thank you, Dr. Chris Smith, uh, Smith, The Naked Scientist. You can catch him www.thenakedscientist.com if you'd like to uh, engage with him further. It's time for news at 10 o'clock next. Ich bin jetzt seit 25 Jahren Makler, aber Wohnungssuche heutzutage. Sie glauben ja gar nicht, was die Leute alles versuchen. Neulich wollte mich ein Paar mit ihrem Ehering bestechen, hab natürlich abgelehnt, sowas mache ich nicht. Und dann, auf der letzten Besichtigung, kam eine Gruppe von Studenten, die sind mit einer Riesenleiter über den Balkon in die Wohnung geklettert, um ganz vorne mit dabei zu sein. Was kommt als nächstes? Rentner, die sich vom Dach abseilen? Dabei gibt's doch bessere Wege, um an ein neues Zuhause zu kommen. Finde Immobilien, die du sonst nirgends findest, auf eBay Kleinanzeigen.